The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. One argument you can make for the existence of God is something called the argument from desire. It goes something like this. Why do you have thirst? You could say, I just exercised, I'm I'm inadequately hydrated. But in an ultimate sense, why do you have thirst? Why do you crave water? And the reason is, is because water is a thing and your body needs it, right? So thirst that you experience in in a way testifies to the existence of water. Okay, so why are you hungry? And again, we could say, you know, maybe it's because I just worked a long day, I had a, I had a leg day at the gym, I've worked up an appetite, that's why I'm hungry. Or I had Panera and the portions are way too small, that's why I'm still hungry. But in an ultimate sense, why does your body crave food? Again, it's because your body was built for food. That there, there's food that corresponds to the, the desire and the need that you possess. Similarly, you could say, why do you long to be happy? And why does that happiness never, ever seem to get scratched? Why is that itch so elusive for us? It's like, yeah, we experience joy and we experience, you know, the brightness and the the fun of Christmas, but it just evaporates so quickly. Why is that the case? Maybe it's because we were built for something that exceeds the futile happiness that this world has to offer, that we, we are offered happiness in an ultimate sense. It's like we crave meat and greens and rolls and potatoes, but all we seem to get our hands on is Cheez-Its and gummy bears. We long to be happy with a capital H. We have a soul ache, a longing for a place that we've never been. And the reason is because we were created for God. That there is one who can satisfy us. We, We have these infinite appetites that are built for something equally as infinite. God himself. And what Christian, what the Bibles teach, what, uh, what the Bible teaches and what Christian theology teaches is the place where we meet God, the place where we begin to learn how to be happy in God, the place where we interact with Him and where we experience Him is prayer. Today, we're beginning a, a three-week series called Praying with Paul. We did this in early 2021, and we're going to do it again this year. And what we're doing is we're going to these prayers in the New Testament. We're going to Paul the Apostle. And as he's writing these letters to these churches, every now and again, he just sort, sort of starts to, just starting to pray. And so we're saying, what, what if we went to those prayers and we just observed the things that Paul prayed for, and we asked God to give us clarity on the things that we should pray for? A great place to get a glimpse into what God wants us to pray, how God wants us to pray, is to look at how the Spirit led Paul to pray in these letters to these churches. Because at the end of the day, we want to be happy. At the end of the day, we want to experience and know God, and we want to pray like Paul, and we want to pray with Paul, and we want to learn to pray the things that the Spirit leads Paul to pray. Now, I would imagine if we did a survey of the church disciplines that you want to increase. We all have resolutions, you know, tis the season for resolutions, right? If we we were to take a survey of those habits, those Christian disciplines that you wanted to increase in, I would imagine that the vast majority of us would say prayer is one of those disciplines. That we feel that we don't pray, you know, outstandingly, right? Like, we, we, have, we have room to grow in our prayer. So, and so we want to pray. We, we want to we learn to pray over the course of these next three weeks. We want to emphasize prayer. We want to pray together. We want to pray individually. We want to talk about aligning our hearts with God's heart for us in prayer. And we're going to do so by looking at passages like 
Romans chapter 11, just read by Gabe. Now, Romans is a letter that was written to a collection of Jews and Gentiles who professed the name of Jesus in the city of Rome. Uh, And the letter has been summarized as a message that's about justification by faith that leads to fellowship by faith. So Paul is writing to these Christians who are in the church at Rome, and they're experiencing conflict along ethnic lines. So you have the Jews and the Gentiles kind of at odds with one another. They're not exactly uh, living in community well with one another, we might say. And so the whole point of the book of Romans is, one, Paul wants to show how all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are in need of grace. it's, It's always been grace, and there's not one person or one ethnic group that has a leg up on the promises of God. So first, everybody needs grace, Jew and Gentile alike. And secondly, Paul's major point in the book of Romans is that in light of that kind of equal footing we all have before God and before his grace, we should have fellowship. We have fellowship in the grace of God because we are all equally deserving of the grace of God. Chapters 9 through 11 in particular are these like tightly reasoned cases for showing God's purposes and election for the nation of Israel, its implications for Gentiles like us, those who have been grafted into the people of Israel. And at the end of that whole kind of tightly reasoned, very cerebral section, Paul just surfaces for a second from all of this headiness. And he's like, isn't this just incredible, by the way? Because as we talk about God's purposes in history, isn't it just amazing Let's look at chapter 11, starting verse 33, once again. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of God. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The first thing I love about this is this is just a, a moment of worship for Paul. As he's writing this letter, it just kind of breaks out in his writing, this moment of worship. He ends chapter 11 by just taking a deep breath and saying, Isn't this unreal? Like, who could have dreamed of this? Who could have, who could have seen this coming? coming? This, this amazing true story of the whole world. You have the nation of Israel who has given God's promises, and it seems like they've rejected the Messiah, and you would think that that means failure on God's part, but psh, in actuality, it's God's plan to graft the Gentiles in, and it's always been his plan all along. The bringing together of heaven and earth and the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's like, isn't it amazing? Oh, the depth of the riches, of the, of the wisdom, of the knowledge of God. Paul bursts forth celebrating the depths of who God is. Now, a couple of, a couple of years ago, we did a men's retreat where uh, a group of our men went to a little cabin in the woods in Tryon. Uh, I wasn't here for this particular men's retreat, but one of the things that I heard about was apparently there was kind of, kind of close to the cabin that the guys were staying in, there were a couple of caves that you could access through holes in the ground, and I, I am deeply, yeah, I see some of you guys already shaking your heads like, nope, ain't happening. I am, I am deeply claustrophobic, and I get very freaked out. You know, at, I can't even like, get under the, the, my kids' beds to retrieve toys. It just freaks me out. And so there were some guys in our church who were like, climbing through these holes that were like waste you know, width, kind of shimmying down these holes to go explore these underground caves. And everything about that is a horrible idea, Right? <laughs> Have you ever seen these documentaries of these cave divers, these guys who like kind of shimmy through these impossibly tight holes, and then they they uncover these like vast underground cathedrals? Have you ever ever seen these before? It's amazing. There's like whole worlds that exist beneath the surface of the earth. Like you start talking about depths, and you start thinking about the depths of planet earth. It makes 
no sense. I, I read recently that if you were to measure the depth of the Marianas Trench all the way to the height of Mount Everest, it would be the equivalent of a postage stamp on a soccer ball in terms of how deep planet Earth actually goes. Isn't that insane? A postage stamp on a soccer ball. And Paul says, oh, the depths of God. Oh, the depths of God's riches, the depths of God's wisdom, the depths of God's knowledge. The depths of God's riches. Who among us, who in this room would use depths to describe their riches, right? That we're swimming on the shallow end of the pool, like the, the majority of us, right? Paul says the depth of God's riches. In chapter 2, verse 4, he, he tells us what kind of riches they are. He says, chapter 2, verse 4, the riches of God's kindness. The depths of the riches of God's kindness. In chapter 9, verse 23, he says, it's the riches of God's glory. And then in chapter 10, verse 12, he says that these riches are available to everyone who calls on his name. The one who is and owns all, giving all to his people. The depths of his riches given to us. Then he says, the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge. His wisdom is old and complete. He's the sovereign over every contour and twist and turn in history. And he's directing it towards its end in Jesus. Just when you think it takes a left turn, God shows that that left turn has always been a part of the grand story that he's been telling. What can't God know? The scriptures tell us that he has numbered every grain of sand. I can't even remember my children's names most days. And he has numbered every grain of sand. He says he, Jesus tells us that God knows each hair on our heads. He knows each lily and each sparrow. And maybe more astonishing, he searches and knows man's heart. What can't God know? What doesn't God know? The depth of his riches and wisdom and knowledge. And then I love the, the second part of this exclamation. It's just negation. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. It's like the, the best that Paul can do there is just say what God isn't. God isn't fathomable. He isn't understandable or totally knowable. He isn't comprehensible. His mind can't be penetrated. His depths cannot be plumbed. It's worth pointing out here that there's a difference between knowing and knowing comprehensively, which is what Paul's point is. Not that God can't be known at all, but that God can't be known completely. I have this in the, the little insert in your bulletin. Make note of this. That God's character is such that he reveals himself generously. He reveals himself generously through the natural world, the, the skies proclaim his handiwork, through his revealed word, through the incarnate son, the Lord Jesus. He reveals himself generously. He is not shy about who he is. But his nature is such that he is too big to be known fully. We can know God, but we can't ever get to the end of knowing God comprehensively. Like, even if you remove sin from the equation, this is still the reality of God's immensity beside our frailness. The infinite creator will always be entirely other than the finite creature. He will always be too much for our brains to take in, and it will be that way forever. This is actually really good news for us, because I remember as a kid, whenever I thought about what we were going to do in eternity, I was always very... Afraid of being bored, if I can say it, honestly. Because I remember I'd grow, I, the, the church that I grew up in, they would always say, like, can't, aren't you excited when we get to do this forever? And I was kind of like, this for, forever? 
by God's grace, I've, I've matured and come to appreciate what this was referring to, I hope. But we, we get to spend eternity in God's presence where the veil is lifted and we are fully with God. But listen, because God is infinite and we are finite, and that doesn't change when sin is removed, what awaits us in eternity, listen, is novel experience after God, a novel experience of God, rather, after novel experience of God, after novel experience of God forever. Because he cannot be exhausted by finite creatures, we will spend forever going further up and further in, further up and further in forever. How unsearchable and how inscrutable is God and his judgments and his ways. For Paul and the biblical writers, there's a, a reality that is so much bigger than our reality. It's so much bigger and so much more real than our reality. It's a reality that you can't measure or quantify or test tube, right? It's, it is beyond the realm and reach of science. And we, we live in a culture that has reduced reality to, to this, to what we see, taste, touch, and feel. About five, six hundred years ago, the intellectual world began slowly shifting away from belief in the supernatural of some kind into a kind of reduction of just belief in the material world. What they say is, and what we say is that God can't be real because he can't be seen, tasted, or smelled. It's like we, we can't see God, we can't taste or, or touch or feel God in any real sense. Therefore, obviously, God isn't real. But to the biblical authors, they say God can't be seen, he can't be tasted, and he can't be smelt precisely because he is too real for us. It's, it's like he is too real and his existence is too significant for us to actually have the capacity to take in. He is bigger than what our senses will ever be able to comprehend. He is absolutely transcendent as the creator over all things. Now, this might seem silly, but it'd be kind of like, and hopefully you understand where I'm going with this. How would you explain your very 3D existence to a cartoon? To Bugs Bunny. Yeah, you know? It's like th there is a, such a difference in the, the flat kind of 2D animation. It's like how would you even begin to explain what a 3D reality is? And it's like in a similar way, God's reality is, is so much further and beyond our reality. It's like the best that we can get is approximations of the truth. He exists in an existence that is beyond and above and totally other than us. And for Paul, that is a delight. Your ways are beyond us. Your judgments are too big to be searched. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Here Paul is probably quoting two different passages. He's probably referencing Job chapter 41 and Isaiah chapter 40. I'm actually going to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We'll start in verse 9. About 800 years before Paul wrote this letter, the people of Israel are exiled in Babylon. It's this very small minority group of people who are amongst this kind of aggressive, ever-expanding world power. And for the, the people who are in exile, the question is, does God see us? And, and does God have any ability to do anything about this? Watch how Isaiah offers encouragement and comfort to the people of Israel. Verse 9 of chapter 40. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. 
Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. For who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with? An idol? Give me a break. A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He is too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The encouragement from Isaiah is that he gives to the people of Israel is take rest in this. There is none like God. There is nothing that God cannot do. There is nothing that God has not done Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific, the Mediterranean, the the oceans on Mars and Jupiter are in the palm of the Lord's hand. He has marked off the heavens with a span. You know, scientists tell us that the universe is ever expanding, and it's like, you know what? God says, been there, done that. Like, I've, I've been around that block infinite times. Like Isaiah, Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? The final chapters of Job, very much like what Isaiah does here. After Job experiences incredible suffering, he asks God, why am I suffering? Where have you been? And God answers. Wish we could read like the last three chapters of the book of Job. God answers, who commands the morning? Who who has the, the sun on a leash like a puppy? Who oversees the ox and the deer and the donkey? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Who stands above me? Who who is giving me anything that I am indebted to him? God stands supremely above all men, nations, worlds, and creation. And Paul writing Romans surfaces and says, can you believe it? Isn't it unbelievable? Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him, Paul tells us, are all things. If you were to ask, why are all things? Paul's answer, God. If we were to ask, how are all things? Paul's answer, God. If we were to ask, for what are all things? Paul's answer, God. He is the beginning, the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, and he is the end, the end of the end of the end. He is the goal for which all things were made, and he governs all things in between. Outside of space and time, he has been called the eternal now, 
To him be glory forever, Paul tells us. Amen. What does the word glory mean? The scriptural authors talk about God possessing glory. What is glory? Now, the biblical idea of glory is, is something like weight. To say that God possesses glory, it's kind of a, an approximation of this kind of concept of weight. And actually, we do similar things with our language, right? What is everything in the material world made out of? We'd say matter. All right, if something's really important, you would say it what? Matters, right? So we have kind of this sense that something, it, it kind of, if something's important, it's, it's weighty, it's heavy, it's dense, right? So when the, the biblical authors talk about God possessing glory and all glory belonging to him, it's like all density is God's. It's like he is the center of the universe and everything revolves around him. He is all important. He is all significant. He is all that matters. All glory to him forever, Paul says. And with Paul, we say amen. Now, as we read this, how does, how does Paul speak to how we are to align our hearts with God through prayer? How, how, can we, how can we read what Paul says here and, and kind of get our hearts in line with, with, with God's heart in this passage? And I would just ask you this, how big is the God you pray to? How big is the God you pray to? What happens in the Bible when people have an unveiled experience of God? Somebody remember passages like Isaiah chapter 6? Maybe you're not very familiar with the Bible You've not read Isaiah 6. But what takes place is this poor guy is given this vision of heaven. He's ushered into the throne room. And his, there's, a, there's an unspeakable smallness that washes over Isaiah in the presence of God's otherness. He says, woe is me. I'm small. But also, I am a man of unclean lips amidst a people of unclean lips. What about the apostle John, the beloved disciple, who knew and loved and interacted with Jesus regularly. What happens to John when, when he meets the unveiled, unfiltered Christ in the book of Revelation? When he sees the resurrected Jesus, he drops in submission like a man who is dead. There's a guy called Rudolf, Rudolf Otto who wrote about uh, religious experience, and he talked about this experience of the numinous, which go impress people with that word after, at lunch, the, the numinous it's this experience of something that is completely and utterly other. He used this Latin phrase, the mysterium tremendum, to talk about the experiences we see in like Isaiah 6 and Revelation. It's this, it's this uh, 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 encounter with something that is so beyond our ability to comprehend that it just reduces us to feeling as nothing, as emptiness. But something else that he observed in these passages, and, and I think kind of speaks to something that's true in our hearts, is, is that paired with this tremendous sense of dread and overwhelm that these characters experience is also this kind of deep invitation in. There's a, a kind of fixation on the numinous or the other that draws us in and compels us towards it. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this, but uh, when I was on sabbatical last summer, uh, Emily and I went and spent some time in southwest Colorado, and I totally get the romance of the West, the, the hype of, of going to Colorado. It is, it is for real. It is amazing and beautiful out there. But we went on this hike. Emily really wanted to go on this hike to this mountain lake. And so I, I don't remember how many feet it was. It was a lot of feet getting up to the top of that mountain. And she was just like a springing up like a little doe boop, 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 up the hill. And I'm huffing and puffing, trying to keep up with her, acting like, no, I'll keep carrying the bag. Yeah, I'm totally fine kind of thing. 
But as we, as we walk up, and I'm totally hot and sweaty, and we, we kind of emerge from the, the forest, we see this mountain lake, and it's this incredibly blue, I mean, it was like a, like a putt-putt course pond blue, but naturally so, or like a, like a blue popsicle blue. It was unbelievable at the foot of these mountains that I have, I have never seen mountains like this in my life. And this, pond, this lake, rather, is, is sourced by the melting snow coming off of these mountains. It was unbelievable how beautiful it was. And I told Emily, I was like, this is, I, this is the prettiest thing I've ever seen. And I, I know this is crazy, but I have to swim in it. I have to get in this water. I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but something about the beauty of this place, I just have to go participate in it. And so I go behind a rock, and I, I brought a bathing suit with me, and I strip down, and I run and jump in the water. And of course, it was like an ice bath. I mean, it instantly took my breath away, and I jumped in the water and turned around and got right back out of the water, and <laughs> that was that. But there's this tendency, I think, that we possess, and that, that I think the God of the Scriptures has this kind of power over us. That, that he confronts us with a kind of dread and overwhelmed, but it is, it is paired with a kind of beauty that draws us in and invites us to participate in it. A theologian called Craig Carter said that, wor- this is perfect, worship is being irresistibly drawn into the most beautiful place you can imagine while simultaneously wondering if you will ever get out alive. And I think that's it. That is it. And I think that is what Paul is identifying here. He's got us big and he is other. And I have no idea if I stand a chance before him, but I want to know him and I want to be in him and I want to enjoy him. I think about the story of Thomas Aquinas, this theologian in the Middle Ages, who writes this incredibly important theological brick called the Summa Theologica. It's like a comprehensive theological work. I mean, it is literally his life's work. But one day he has an experience of God in prayer, and you know what he says after this one particular experience of God in prayer, after devoting his whole life to writing on theology, he says, I'm done. All my work is straw in comparison to God. No more writing for me. He quits writing and he dies three years later. How big is the God we pray to? Is he the gloriously limitless God of the Bible? I think Paul's prayer invites us to have the proper regard for the bigness of God. A sense of God resting heavily upon us, a kind of intoxicated dread before him. But don't mistake his bigness for distance or aloofness. Maybe we think of God being big as kind of, he's kind of forever out there. He's, you know, he's attending to the stuff that's happening on one of those planets with numbers for a name. That's what God is up to. His, his bigness kind of extends in one direction. He's, he's forever getting farther away from me. But have you ever considered that in a, in a mind-bending kind of way, that God's big, bigness means that, yes, he encompasses the, the limitless expanse of space and time, and, listen to this, paradoxically, he is small enough to play bet- between protons and neutrons. Here's what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, just listen. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. It's, it's big, it's powerful, he's supreme over all things, he has no needs. He determines the boundaries of nations. 
But then watch what he says. Yet, God is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Don't mistake God's bigness for distance or aloofness. In him, we live and move and have our beings. God's unlimited depths means that he has an unlimited attention span to give to you, to give to your, and to give to my very particular situations all at once. Because God is near to us. He is big enough to be small. So in that incredibly lonely, hard place of suffering, of distance, of feeling cut off from everyone and everything, in him we live and move and have our being. God is big enough to be near to us, even there. In places of despair and fear and hopelessness, God is is big enough to be small and be near to you. Don't mistake his bigness for distance. And don't mistake his bigness for begrudging. We think God is big and powerful and busy. And I'm down here, and anything he does, he does because he's obligated to do so, or we kind of pray in the way that we email each other. Hey, if it's okay, and you're not too busy, and you don't, you don't mind, I mean, actually, you don't even have to do this if you don't necessarily want to. It's no big deal. No worries. Emoji. <laughs> Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches of God, the riches of his kindness and his grace, which in Ephesians, Paul tells us he lavishes on us. Lavish isn't begrudging. It is, some, it is something that someone with a lot gives to someone with a little. He lavishes his grace on us. And God has given us, us, you and I, seemingly insignificant us, riches in Christ Jesus. He has given us himself. When he sends his son Jesus, through whom and for whom all things were made, to take on flesh and to be, to be born of a woman and bear human frailty, to be crucified for us so that we could be drawn into all that God is. In fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, you, you want to know what God's glory is? You want, you want to see God's bigness? The cross. How big is the God that we pray to? And practically, if we're looking for some practical takeaways, how do we pray in light of this passage? I would just say this. Make adoration a routine part of your praying. Make adoration a routine part of your praying. Maybe your tendency is to always go to God with request, which is a very good tendency. But let's not overlook the need to go to God in adoration. You say, hey, I, don't, I don't know if I, I, I got it in me always to go to God in adoration. Well, I think one of the helpful parts of habits is the more you do a habit and the more you pretend like you got it in you to give God adoration, the more that you'll find you have in you to give God adoration. Let all that God is capture our imagination and stir us up. I mean, isn't that what we want? Something big and powerful and good and beautiful. Someone infinite and someone big enough to be small. Make adoration a routine part of your praying. What I love about this prayer from Paul is we know Paul is a, if I could say it this way, respectfully, a huge nerd. Right? He's, he's a smart guy. He's very cerebral. He's a brainiac. But is this prayer here cold and analytical from Paul? May we, may we allow ourselves to be caught up in the grandeur and glory of who God is and not be afraid to be expressive and impassioned and worship and prayer and adoration of this God. Because our hearts were made for God and they are restless until they find rest in Him. 
Over the course of the next few weeks, we've talked about how we're going to look at these prayers of Paul. But in conjunction with that, we're going to do two things. Uh, one, we've invited the church to participate in a 21-day um, prayer and fast. We've just invited the church to consider things that you can eliminate from your life to create space for prayer. I mean, at its heart, fasting is about dependence on God. And if we're, if we're, if we're going to start here with God's bigness and his, uh, his limitless power over our lives, it makes sense for us to, make, to incorporate practices that remind us of our dependence on him. You know, I've said before, uh, I was talking to Jonathan Franklin this week, the next time you feel high and mighty and you feel really proud of yourself, go 24 hours without food. And it humbles you in a hurry because you realize how dependent on things outside of yourself you actually are. One of the practices of, or, or points of the practice of fasting is to remind us of our need for God. So we're inviting the church to, to pray and, and fast over the next 21 days. Whatever that fast is, if it's one meal one day a week, if it's uh, fasting from eating during daylight hours, if it's fasting from media, whatever it is, fasting to create space for prayer is the invitation. The second thing we're inviting the body to do is to actually spend time praying in here on Sundays. In the next few moments, I'm going to conclude this sermon time with prayer. Uh, but if, you feel, if, if you're physically able and you feel comfortable to do so, we're going to invite you during the space when the band is playing music to just come down front and pray, to come adore God, to come bring your need before God, to come weep and groan and allow the Spirit to interpret for you. We're going to open the space at the front to pray corporately, and we're going to do that today, next week, and the next week. I heard a story a couple of years ago about a, a king, and I have no idea if this is a true story, but a story about a king who's approached by a child, and the child asks for some ridiculous sum of money, and much to the surprise of the king's servants, the king says, grant the child his request. And this is what he says. He honors me with his request because he thinks me rich enough to afford it and kind enough to be willing. May God's bigness give us confidence in what we ask, that, that he can do something about it, but may his nearness give us confidence that he knows that he loves us as his children. After I pray, the invitation is for you to come pray down front if you're able, if you're willing. Lord Jesus, we struggle for words. And like the Apostle Paul, we sometimes feel ourselves just only being able to say what you're not. But we thank you for who you have shown yourself to be in the person of Jesus. Incredible power over evil, over storms, over seas, over sickness, over death, but incredible grace. My God, we pray that that would be that the, the reality of who you are is as big and near, as transcendent yet imminent, as holy yet gracious, would rest so heavily on us as a body. And I pray for that kind of fixated fear on you. Lord God, would you rest heavily upon our church? not just in, in these meetings, these gatherings, but also in our day-to-day -day and in our parenting and our exercise and our work, whatever it is, would you rest heavily upon us and be ever before us and may we, with Paul, 
offer our lives as living sacrifices for your glory and for your name's sake. God, we pray that you would be honored in our prayers as a church, and that through us you would make Christ known. We pray this in his name. Amen.